This is a podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. For this first episode, we introduce Tom Hall, a lecturer at Cardiff University's School of Social Sciences, where he teaches sociology, urban theory and ethnography. He'll be reading from his book Footwork, Urban Outreach and Hidden Lives. From the rough sleeping homeless to street drinkers and sex workers, this book reveals the stories of the vulnerable and isolated, people living in the city we often choose to ignore. This book is about the city. More than that, or more particularly, it is about city streets and the ways in which those who might come to depend on them are seen by others passing by. Not only seen, but sometimes seen too and looked after. This makes it a book about people and what they are prepared to see and do and the moves they make, again, on the city streets. Put concretely, footwork describes the operating practices of a team of outreach workers charged to look after people found in difficulties on the streets of only one city, Cardiff. Just about all the action in the book comes from Cardiff because that is the city in which I live. I came to Cardiff in 1997. I was born and grew up in Manchester. This makes it a very local account and as such it stands for itself. We all close our eyes to the city some of the time, choosing to ignore a lot of what takes place around us. A sort of blindness might even be necessary to city life, thinning out the massive sensory input available to us at any one time, the artefactual and architectural cacophony of the streets. Urban environments exceed our ability to encompass them, even in a frozen moment, never mind the swinging perspectives brought on by movement, never mind the upheavals of configuration brought on by construction and demolition. And in this sense we have no choice at all. The city is too much, and we must shut it out, or at any rate manage and prioritise our encounter with it, closing an eye, picking our route, opening an umbrella. Nor is this just a matter of ourselves and the built environment. We are not alone in the city. There are countless others there too. Some of the ways in which we see and seek out and also hide from these others, or fail to see them, in the midst of a changing cityscape, is the subject of this book. The idea of the city as a hard place is an old saw, hard in itself as a physical site built to last, like the third little piggy's house, but hard also in the sense that the people living there are said to be distant and unfeeling, with not much time for others they do not already know. They look past you in the street, right through you. To be hard in this way is to belong to the city. The implied contrast is that between an urban way of life and personality and some other existence where something more like kindness and community prevail, most likely rural. But it is not all bad news for the city. If city dwellers are unfriendly, they are also said to be savvy and sharp, go-getting, sophisticated too, although this word can bite back. This distinction between city life and country living reaches back a long way. It is, of course, ideological and has been variously put to work and imagined but it is not wholly imaginary, not simply false. As a contrastive device, it has played a particular role in sociological analyses of the modern industrial city and its progeny. 
It was central to the work of the Chicago School of Urban Sociology, whose investigations of city life are generally recognised as having established modern urban studies. For the Chicago sociologists, the modern city was remaking human nature, establishing new types of personality, modes of thought, and a city mentality clearly differentiated from the rural mind. The difference was not merely one of degree, but of kind. Cities were different sorts of places. City dwellers were different sorts of people. Central to this analysis was the idea that city life was a matter of living among strangers and a matter of getting used to this. Strangers in the city were not, as elsewhere, occasional figures not from round here and most likely gone tomorrow. Strangers were locals, the very inhabitants with whom life was going to have to be made from one day to the next. They belonged in the city, no less than you did. Strangers were the city. And urbanism, as a way of life, meant managing that extraordinary circumstance somehow. Along something like the same lines, Nigel Thrift has recently argued that the jar and scrape of everyday encounters with others we do not know makes the city essentially antisocial. Misanthropy, he suggests, is a natural condition of cities, one which cannot be avoided and will not go away. He describes cities today as threaded through with aversion and ill will, even hatred. Cities are full of impulses which are hostile and murderous and which cross the minds and bodies of even the most pacific and well-balanced citizenry. Is the city really as hard as all that? Here is Jonathan Rabban on the well-balanced citizenry of 1970s London. Coming out of the London Underground at Oxford Circus one afternoon, I saw a man go berserk in the crowd on the stairs. You fucking, fucking bastards, he shouted, and his words rolled round and round the lavatorial porcelain tube as we ploughed through. He was in a neat city suit with a neat city paper neatly folded in a pink hand. What was surprising was that nobody showed surprise. A slight speeding up in the pace of the crowd, a turned head or two, a quick grimace. But that was all. Who feels love for his fellow man at rush hour? Not me. I suspect the best insurance against urban violence is the fact that most of us shrink from contact with strangers. A moment of urban frenzy. A decidedly odd thing for a man in a neat city suit to do. And yet the incident is nothing really, not at all newsworthy, just one of those things that happen sometimes in the city, more often than we care to notice. Most of us are familiar with the sudden flare-up of urban ill-temper, even rage. The impulse is always there, as a possibility, and we are prepared for it. Just another one of those things. Only last week I saw a man assaulted outside a pub across the road from where I was sitting in my car. It was an explosive escalation of what seemed to have been a petty row and was all over in seconds. He got up from the ground, his shirt front spattered with blood and retreated inside, backing through the pub door, his hands raised. His attacker stayed outside and stalked up and down the pavement, gesturing angrily but with diminishing conviction running himself down like a clockwork toy. A third man, leaning against the wall of the pub, watched the whole thing over the top of his pint glass without once moving or giving any sign that he had actually seen anything. I waited for the lights to turn green and drove on. 
This was something more than the jar and scrape of city life, but nothing traumatic in any sense that could be said to have widened beyond those directly involved. No one witness to the assault seemed to think it worth doing anything much about, myself included. No one tried to get involved, and no one was visibly upset other than the two protagonists. I did flinch a little, inwardly, at the time, but that was about it. I suppose others, the third man, leaning on the wall, may have done the same. To flinch is to shy or turn away, also to shrink, under pain. The idea that another's pain might be ours as well, or that our sharing of it, imaginatively, might be the way through to fellow feeling, can be found in Adam Smith's moral philosophy. Smith argues that it is human nature to feel pity or compassion for the misery of others. Sympathy. The greatest ruffian, the most hardened violator of the laws of society, is not altogether without it. Yet, if we are not without pity, this is still some way off from routinely taking a hand in the lives of others, parking the car and getting out and crossing the road to check that someone, a stranger, is going to be OK. Smith's account starts with what we might see and how that might make us feel. We see a blow fall and we imagine how it might feel to have been hit. Perhaps we flinch. But if we already shrink from contact with strangers, as Raban has it, what does it matter if we also flinch when we see a stranger hurt? What we see of their injury leads nowhere. Is seeing enough? To gaze is to stare, to look vacantly but at the same time fixedly. Snapshots are images taken out of passing life. But it does not follow that this is how we only ever see, the eye like a camera. There are other ways of looking, not so fixed or photographic, to see in a way that engages others, strangers and their needs, and the world around us, is not so much to gaze at as to inquire and question, to look out for and look after, a discursive attention perhaps. In large part, and in the detail certainly, that is what this book is about. There is an irregular collection of people very close to the centre of this book whose lived circumstances animate others in various ways and whose use of city space can make them particularly, sometimes painfully, visible, even at the same time as that visibility counts for almost nothing. Those who set eyes on them don't much care to see them. They are also elusive, practised at skirting the sorts of notice they would rather not attract. Who are they? Among them are the homeless. Most of them can be called homeless, depending on what the word is taken to mean. Some are called street drinkers and street beggars. Some are called street prostitutes. They are varied enough in their outlook and character, and as such, not so very different from any other collection of people one might choose to nominate and assemble. It would be a mistake to set them apart categorically, if doing so were meant to indicate some shared character trait or shortcoming. What they do share is some common portion of a slew of economic and social difficulties made manifest as personal history and individual circumstance, which has seen them pushed out onto the street. Some are obviously homeless because they live in homeless hostels, which is to say that they have a roof over their heads after all, though they may spend the better part of most days out of doors. 
Some have homes of their own or houses or, more likely, rented rooms in houses, though held precariously and quite often on terms that make the street seem a refuge. They do not sleep well. No one in a hostel ever did, to my knowledge. Certainly not those who are out of doors at night and up against the hard surfaces of the city sleeping rough. Here are a few of them. Gerald sleeps, as I write, against the rear wall of the Glamorgan building in Cardiff's civic centre. He may not be sleeping at all, may not have slept much all night, but he has a place made for himself there and has occupied it dependably for the last few months, wrapped in a sleeping bag with his minimal possessions arrayed around him. He doesn't move much and doesn't like to be disturbed. He can spend two or three days and nights in this same spot without seeming even to stand up. He must sleep some of the time. The Glamorgan building, once the County Hall of Glamorgan, houses Cardiff University's Schools of City and Regional Planning and Social Sciences. It is a large, neoclassical listed, grade one, building. I work there in an office on the first floor with a view out across the city towards Cardiff Bay. Directly below my window, a walkway runs along the side of the building and around a corner to a car park at the back. Here, squeezed between the tarmac apron and the rear wall of the building under cover of a first floor balcony and balustrade, are a couple of concrete benches and some bicycle racks. And this is where Gerald has established himself, where he was lying this morning as I passed him on my way into the building. It is a good spot, sheltered from the rain and mostly quiet. Gerald is one of Cardiff's street homeless and looks the part rather more than some others do. Elderly and dishevelled, stooped when he stands, under the weight of a hopelessly overstuffed duffel bag. He has been on the streets for a number of years, off and on, and has slept all over the city, but seldom in any one place for long. Wherever he goes, he gets moved on. Given which, his occupancy of this little strip of space at the back of the Glamorgan building is some sort of accomplishment. He has managed to stop somewhere and stay for three months now, and has yet to be shooed away. Even so, there is still a problem with him staying where he is, another sort of problem. His physical mobility is poor and failing and likely to deteriorate all the more quickly the longer he spends cocooned in his sleeping bag. Some days he doesn't get up at all, and when he does he struggles, a consequence of which is that he has become more and more isolated and withdrawn. He will not make conversation beyond a word or two, sometimes refusing to speak at all even to the local authority outreach workers who come out to see him most mornings, pretending to be asleep when it suits him, or, quite possibly, sleeping. He is unresponsive to any suggestion that he ought to get into a hostel. In what they would argue to be his best interests, those caring for Gerald, or trying to, have seen to it that his current sick note, confirming his frailty and validating his benefit entitlement, runs for only a month at a time. This means that Gerald has to get up and walk across the city centre to see his GP every few weeks. Gerald would rather he didn't have to go so often. He doesn't like doctors, and he doesn't like the benefits people much either. He gets along well enough with Charlie, one of the outreach workers. It is Charlie who has made the arrangement with Gerald's GP to keep his sick note temporary. 
She hopes to keep him walking that way, and looked over, once a month. Common sense, isn't it, says Paul, tapping his head. Don't shit on your own doorstep. Paul likes things neat and organised, and although he uses some of the same facilities as other rough sleepers in Cardiff, he generally keeps to himself. He is not a drinker, doesn't take drugs, dresses smartly, and always hurries along the streets as if he has somewhere else to be, which he mostly hasn't. The same team of welfare professionals that visits Gerald in the early mornings... Cardiff's city centre team, calls on Paul too, when they can find him. He moves around a bit, and every now and then disappears from Cardiff altogether. Paul is in his thirties and has, by his own account, not been settled anywhere very long since he left care in his late teens. He has family locally, he says, but doesn't seem to be much in contact with them or able to stay there. He is almost always cheerful but insistently so, to the point where it all seems like a bit of an act. There is a stubbornness, too, that keeps him from accepting offers of help or even acknowledging that he needs any. His longest stay in any one location in Cardiff was in the corner of a church car park off to the side of the city's main pedestrian thoroughfare. His patch there, a square of tarmac beneath a flight of stairs at the back of the building, was characteristically domestic, a bed of wooden pallets with blankets and blue plastic sheeting laid across or neatly rolled and stored alongside throughout the day, his other minimal belongings arrayed on the shelves of a discarded fridge, now a cupboard, two wheelie bins pulled in close as a windbreak when required, everything just so. The one time I have seen Paul angry and out of sorts was when his room under the stairs was tidied away. He had returned late one night, later than usual because there had been something on at the church and he hadn't wanted to disturb anyone, or be disturbed. To find his bed gone, along with all his bedding. The fridge, too. He found a bag of his personal belongings in one of the two wheelie bins. The following morning he was sitting on the wall by the entrance to the car park. He was fuming and prepared to take the story to the local press if the church didn't recompense him in some way. He was going nowhere till he'd seen the vicar. But it all came to nothing. No one turned up, and he never went to the papers. And by that evening he had found himself another likely-looking corner to bed down in, on the fringe of a stalled building site. The loss of his place by the church still rankled, though, and for weeks he would rehearse the injustice to anyone who would listen. And I always kept that place clean. Spotless, not shat it up like others do, Litter in the bin, no mess. Common sense, isn't it? Don't shit on your own doorstep. But cheery now, like it was basically all okay. Jackie and Wayne are lying down side by side under a blanket with their dog Bruno between them in the covered entrance to the Cardiff International Arena. It is half past two in the morning. Off to one side there are two more figures curled up in sleeping bags. No one is asleep. Jackie is 17, Wayne in his mid-twenties. They are both well-known on the homeless scene in Cardiff and have been sleeping out in this particular spot for a couple of weeks now. Wayne is a heavy drinker. Jackie is too when she is with him. They are a couple. Jackie has a black eye. The social workers and care professionals who have anything to do with her consider Jackie a priority, especially vulnerable and at risk of exploitation. 
It is not quite certain that Jackie is selling sex to keep Wayne and herself in drink. She says she isn't. But she has been seen a few too many times in recent weeks in just the places where you would, at just the wrong times. Attempts over the past year to get her into accommodation have come unstuck as often as they have been attempted. Right now, she won't go anywhere without Wayne and has turned down offers of hostel places twice in the last month on those grounds. Wayne is bulky, a big man, and aggressive with it. He cuts an alarming figure around town, lurching along the pavement, swearing at Bruno as the dog strains and growls on a short chain. There are not too many care professionals as worried for Wayne as they are for Jackie. Rose is walking away from a police car, having been told she will be arrested unless she goes home right away. And what would happen then? asks Charlie, reaching into her bag for a handful of condoms. If I was arrested, it would depend on the copper, says Rose. She takes the condoms. Thanks, just the flavoured. Damien arrived in Cardiff, homeless, and stayed that way for two months, sleeping rough around the city in a dozen different spots never more than half a mile from Cardiff Central Station. He made two close friends early on, for better or worse, Phil and Chrissy. These two, old enough to be his parents, adopted him after a fashion. They looked out for him, making sure no one took advantage or pushed him around. They introduced him to all the local homeless services. Then... One day he left, or disappeared. Nothing was said. He got on a train or got indoors somewhere. Not a hostel, or word would have passed along. Or something else happened. No one seemed to know or be prepared to say. These are, or were, some of Cardiff's homeless and rough sleepers. One way or another, they are out and on the street every night. Not so very long ago, they could have been expected to have had the city centre more or less to themselves after midnight, once the pubs had closed and people had made their way home. But at least two things have changed, have been changing over recent years. Cardiff's nighttime economy has swollen, as it has in a great many other UK cities. The city centre is now home to a complex of themed bar chains and clubs, drawing up to 70,000 people in a weekend evening. Nor has this change come about only through unconscious tacit agreement. Cardiff Council's strategy for the centre of the city, first published in 1997, identifies the creation of a 24-hour city as one of six development priorities. Meanwhile, a wider boosterist agenda shared and promoted by networks of investors, entrepreneurs, politicians and planners has transformed the city skyline. Multiplex cinemas office buildings, and a number of new hotels and apartment buildings running the spectrum from student accommodation through to top-end prestige living developments. In consequence of which, a great many more people sleep in the middle of Cardiff than used to be the case. Where does this leave rough sleepers, and how do they sleep? It leaves them with what is left of the old entanglement of homelessness and central space to be observed in towns and cities across the UK. Still there, but no longer because everyone else has gone home. Still there because they have nowhere else to go, and they sleep badly. They are rough sleepers. If sleep comes in the end as it must, it is no sure remission on the streets. Rather, it is a hazard, something the homeless must snatch, something they must be careful not to slip too deeply into. 
you might not wake up again, given the wrong ratio of booze and drugs, or the cold, or anything else that might do for you before the morning. Sleep is not only difficult but dangerous out of doors in the city, and each of these, difficulty, danger, can have to do with other people. Passers-by may be busily intent on getting somewhere else, and as such hardly concerned with anyone bedded down in a doorway, but others, similarly indifferent, can be more of a nuisance, idly ranging from one bar or club to the next, shouting and laughing. Still others may be out for mischief, may have something to prove, some supposed grudge or slight to exercise. The point being that other people can keep you up or wake you in the street. Noise and inconsideration is one thing, unkindness is another. Some of those who might wake the homeless or keep them from sleeping do so in an official capacity, sometimes unintentionally, street cleaners in high-vis jackets, operatives in a genuinely 24-hour enterprise, buzzing around the city streets, scraping and sweeping up. But also by design, security guards patrolling civic and commercial premises, the bus station, university campus, car parks, sometimes make it their business to move rough sleepers on or wake them early. The rationale for doing so tends to be a little woolly, merging trespass, obstruction and non-specific safety concerns. Sometimes cleaners and security staff combine their efforts, rousting Wayne and Jackie from the entrance to the Cardiff International Arena on a Saturday morning, for example, with the police called as backup should there be any difficulty. Others come round in a similarly official capacity, but to help. In Cardiff, the local authority employs a team of care workers whose job it is to look out for the city's homeless and offer to help them. Members of this team, Charlie and Dennis's team, the city centre team, don't just happen to come across rough sleepers and sex workers in the course of other duties. They actively seek them out and are paid to do so. If Damien takes himself off somewhere at night to bed down away from prying eyes and interruption, then it is Charlie's job to find him and see that he is okay. Others are engaged in the same sort of hide-and-seek altruism, but as charitable or church volunteers rather than local authority employees. The aim here is not to wake anyone up any more than the assumption, among experienced workers, is that more than a very few will be sleeping. The aim is to see to those in difficulty, to find ways in which to help. However, helping someone like Jackie in some way that might lead to her not being homeless anymore, ever again, may require weeks and months of patient and painstaking work, and in lots of ways homelessness itself, the absence of housing, will be the least of it. There will be financial difficulties, family troubles, Health concerns, addictions and suspicions, confusions, wrongs, resentment. In the end, almost any sort of help with any of this might loop back around to sleep. Just where that sleep might happen will be a measure of accomplishment for at least some of those helping Jackie, even at the same time as it may signal nothing so sure as an end to her homelessness. One more category of caller, one more person coming round, the enumerator. Counting the homeless is hard to do for some of the same reasons that helping them might be, but most major cities in the UK attempt it now and then. 
Census figures for England and Wales have in the past included a count of rough sleepers, incorporating a good few wide awake when counted. You must be bedded down, though, or just about to, if you are to count at all. If you are up and about, because you can't sleep, or don't want to risk it, or can't find somewhere, you may not get counted at all. In some homeless counts, rough sleepers not already awake are woken up so that their names and details can be taken to avoid double counting. It is hard to imagine this being unfailingly well received. Those who won't wake up, or pretend to be asleep rather than engage with some administrator in the dead of night, are deemed unresponsive, and in such cases their identities and demographic particulars may be guessed at and noted down. The word unresponsive also belongs to the caring context, where it signals another thought of difficulty. The unresponsive client does not engage with services and assistance offered. For some of the homeless, are you awake is as futile a question as can I help? What sort of answer could you begin to give? <laughs>